to The Tenderness Revolution, a podcast about the stories of kindness, compassion and empathy that play out in our lives, because these deeply moving experiences describe what it means to be human and invite us into a new way of thinking about the world and each other. I'm your host, writer and journalist Yvonne Gavin. And every episode, I'll be asking a new interviewee about a pivotal moment of tenderness that helped shape the course of their life. Today's conversation is with the wonderful Mark Nepo, international best-selling author of more than 20 books, including The Book of Awakening, which has sold more than a million copies as well as a renowned speaker and teacher who was chosen by Oprah Winfrey as one of her Super Soul 100, a group that she described as inspired leaders who are using their gifts to elevate humanity. Mark exudes a deep wisdom and calm presence that's rare in our world today. During our conversation, I was really struck by how much he'd clearly suffered throughout his life and the way that he'd grown from his suffering, the way that he'd gone to the depths of despair, stayed there for a while and really learned some profound lessons about life. Lessons that have helped millions of people now around the world. You see, Mark was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer in his 30s that spread to his brain and developed into a large tumour. And his wife Anne was also diagnosed with cancer around the same time. He describes such a beautiful moment of tenderness that came about during this incredibly difficult period of his life. And I don't want to give too much away. I just want you to enjoy the interview, which was a really calming and grounding experience for me. We covered some fascinating things like what it really means to surrender to life, how to journey inwardly when things are really difficult, why courage isn't the absence of fear, and how our relationship to time shapes us. I really believe that some of the things Mark says in this interview might actually change the way you see the world If you enjoyed this conversation, I'd really appreciate you leaving a little review or getting in touch. I think Mark is a really inspiring person, and I'm sure you will too. Hi, Mark. Hi, hello. It's wonderful to be with you. Thanks so much. It's so lovely to see you. Thanks for being with us today. I have to say, Mark, I absolutely love your work and your books, and I'm really excited to speak to you. But first, I just want to start off, as we always do, by asking you to share your moment of tenderness with us. So the idea behind the Tenderness Revolution podcast is that essentially our lives are made up of all these little stories stitched together. And when we shine a light on scenes where we felt a profound sense of connection to something bigger than ourselves, moments where we felt seen or understood or that we had a deeper relationship to the world around us, it's as though we're awakened to a greater sense of meaning and purpose. So please share with us. Yeah, and actually there's two that really come to mind and heart that I'd like to share. You know, um, years ago, almost 35 years ago now, I just turned 71 and 
in my 30s, as you know from my work, I, I almost died from a rare form of lymphoma. And during that journey, uh, there were many moments, but one that stands out is I was having a pretty aggressive chemotherapy at the time. And, um, and after a while, it's really hard to get the needle into the veins because they're so used and it's hard. And, and I was having, uh, I was having a nurse try several times and it wasn't working. And the more she tried, the more anxious and, uh, upset I was getting. And my dear oldest friend, Robert, who I just spoke with yesterday, um, mm -hmm. We've been brothers for like brothers for over 40 years. He was sitting next to me and he took my forearm where the needle was, had been trying to go in. He kind of motioned to the nurse to wait a minute and he just rubbed my forearm and he just leaned in and to me and said, well, we'll get through this. It'll be okay. And it just was enough to to make me breathe. And then she went and tried again and got it. And, you know, the, it is those moments of complete openness and vulnerability that allows those, as you said, I, I believe too, those, the deeper fabric of life to show itself. And the second moment has to do with my wife, Susan. Susan is a potter and she's very much has her hands in the earth and care we have lots of bird feeders where we live and i came home from a trip um one time to find her in the garage leaning over a shoe box and it turned out that when i got closer there was a small little little bird a little sparrow that had i had we learned had, had run into a window and had broken its neck mm. and she had it on a little washcloth in the shoebox. And when I got up close, she was feeding it drops of water from her finger. Oh. And I'll never, I'll never forget that moment. Um, because that too is, is keeping life force connecting through all things yeah through all things oh I love that and I that's something that I really get from your work um oh those moments are so unbelievably beautiful and they are so tender um and I have found through through reading you and the way you talk about your dog um you you have a dog now i know you had a dog before that that died yes i don't know if you can see her yeah. she's oh <laughs> i can see her yeah you there's so much you have such a steep connection i think with your with animals and i i find that too i i hadn't had a hadn't owned a dog as an adult um until just a couple of years ago and it really has had a profound effect on me like I I swear my dog has a soul <laughs> you know? like yeah, I can see I like and this dog is so like he's all knowing and I I find it so profound that he can't speak <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous but <laughs> you know it's just it's a different relationship isn't it but still it's 
it's there's real intimacy there and you can really have a, a connection well it's a, it's interesting that and you know for me it was also humbling that when i grew up i was bitten when i was very little and so i had a fear of dogs for many years but after my cancer journey i was on vacation and i was in the caribbean on the island of saint martin and with friends and loved ones and there was a group of loose dogs and it occurred to me after almost dying am i still afraid mm. and so i walked by them and i was okay and of course i can still get spooked by an aggressive dog but um but after that um my loved ones gave me a small golden retriever puppy that was my first dog mm. um and Zuzu here behind us is my my third our th our third dog and um and I think it's it's fascinating that yes they they have this deep connection animals and and they don't you know of course we don't speak dog but they may be wondering li listening to us why we don't speak their language that's so um, true <laughs> but um but I think that they don't speak our language because they can point us to wisdom, but we have to learn it ourselves. And there is an interesting in the Native American tradition, many of the stories center on the wisdom of animals. And I, I had a friend who was a is a, a Native American elder, and I asked him about this, and he said, because the great spirit, their name for God, uh, recognized that animals uh, well, it's the other way that humans were the only creatures that forgot their original instructions and therefore animals remained the teachers. Mm. So they're connected to something that we we struggle to sort of remember. Wow. Absolutely. Our, our, you know, um, our authenticity, mm. you know, and our being present and our care, our listening. All of these things are tenderness. Mm. They help us stay directly connected to life. Mm. Mm. And yeah, once we're corrected, yes. Mm. And that um, allows the web of life to show its strength. Mm. Wow. And I love what you said about, um, I mean, I, I read that story before about your experience with dogs and, and it, it was brilliant. and. I think that story, along with um, what you just shared about when you were in hospital and your dear friend was there for you, they both really speak to something I wanted to start off by asking you about, which is this, this kind of, I think this tendency that we have to, to kind of fix on fairness, this idea of fairness, and that this idea that things shouldn't be you know, a certain way. And when things go wrong in our lives, it's not fair. And then we we slip into this victim mentality. And I think because of the intense suffering that you've been through as a cancer survivor, where you were really tested and brought to the brink of your existence, you're really able to speak about suffering with authenticity. And uh, I read a moment where you were in a hotel room, you've been up all night vomiting and and you know you had a rib removed after cancer had come back and that this moment where you you felt that god was right there with you in the room despite 
your wife at the time sort of despairing and saying, you know, where is God? Like, we're, you know, we've been completely abandoned. Um, and I think it's this, this idea of this sense of inner growth or shifting away from the problem towards growth that I think can be so hard for people to understand. Um, I think people often feel that when someone's circumstances are really awful, it's almost glib to suggest that that they should welcome the present moment. And I wondered what you would say to someone who who was stuck in that mindset and ju who just couldn't move beyond it, given your experience. Yeah. So the first thing is is having compassion for ourselves and each other, because no one chooses to be stuck. <laughs> you know, we just find ourselves there. And and yeah. and so let's start with I believe that life somehow has been made just difficult enough that we need each other. Mm to ensure the journey of love. And yes, from that incredibly difficult but profound teaching moment for me when, you know, I realized uh, in my fear, in my pain, in that holiday in outside of New York City, um, that to be broken is no reason to see all things as broken. Mm. And so it opens up a couple of things that are important to explore. And the first is that, that we tend as human beings to make the world to, to project what we're going through on the world. So if I'm afraid, then the world's a fearful place. If I'm broken, then the world's a broken place, you know. Um, and while that's understandable, the resource of life is that, yes, what I'm going through is true, but that's not all life. So while I was, you know, not throwing any wisdom on my part, but just being exhausted, I was in that holiday inn on the floor with my, you know, against the wall, my knees up, my elbows on my knees, my head in my hands, not knowing what was going to happen next. We did eventually go to the emergency room, but like this the dawn was coming and I just was thrown into a moment of realizing, yes, I'm afraid, I'm in pain, I don't know what's happening. And somewhere nearby a baby's being born. Mm. And somewhere nearby a couple are making love for the first time. And somewhere nearby uh, an old parent, aging parent and an estranged son or daughter are having coffee and breaching their difficulties. And so what it's led me to understand over time is that while when I'm afraid, I need someone, I need the company of those who know what it's like to be afraid. I need everything not afraid to heal. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when I'm in pain and broken, while I need the company of those who know what it's like to be broken, I need everything whole to heal. And so all things all things are not fair, all things are not just, but all things are true. And we need to keep our heart open to all of that in order to heal. Mm. So true and so beautiful. I love the way you say it as well. It's, it's, um, oh, it just feels so authentic, as I said, coming from you, you know, given what you went through. Um, and it, it's as though you're talking about kind of surrender 
And I think that's another concept that it, for me, it's really profound and I've really come to understand it through you, but um, I think it, it can also be very difficult. Actually, um, this new year, um, when I was um, back in UK with my family, we, we decided instead of New Year's resolutions, we were going to sort of choose a word that meant something to us, you know, for the year. So I sort of invited my parents and we, we were talking about these words. And I had this word on my mind, surrender. And I said, I think my, my word for the year is surrender. And I remember my mom was horrified and she was sort of like, that's terrible. Cause I think for her, it feels like kind of like a giving in or like a, a sort of a weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually it's not. Um, I wonder if you could talk about what surrender means to you. Yeah. So, and let me also put this in the context of um, one other uh, notion here, and then we'll move into surrender because I'm thinking also of of all that's going on in the Ukraine and mm. everything, the difficulty all over the world. And because mm. in, in a lot of ways, certainly those brave people are fighting and outwardly not surrendering, which is a good thing. And in a lot of ways, I mean, I don't know the inner life of uh, Vladimir Putin, um, but throughout history, people who have been cruel and uncaring have inwardly not surrendered to the journey that allows them to be connected to other life and to value other life. Mm -hmm. So there's a connection between not surrendering to the journey where tenderness leaves that allows us to care for each other and not hurt each other, Mm -hmm. that forces when cruelty happens for people like the people in Ukraine to outwardly not surrender, but fight for, for their lives and and it's all related you know i learned through my life that you know healing and justice sometimes one leads to the other sometimes if in amazing circumstances they are the same thing but often they have different timing Mm. and and so sometimes we have to choose healing over justice in the moment Mm. And and so then we'll move into surrender. But an example of that for me personally was my parents who are both gone now. And I had a difficult, <clears throat> we had a difficult journey together in our lives. Um, and, um, and so I can remember in my 40s, um, starting to heal, but I kept revisiting the 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 painful incidents in my past with them and I kept wondering what am I do it was almost like when you have a scab and you pick it and it bleeds and I realized that I was naturally over time healing but in my want for justice I was trying to keep the evidence fresh in case there was ever a trial (sighs) to show that yeah I was hurt don't you see Mm -hmm. and And I had in that moment, you know, I had to choose healing over justice. Mm. I had to allow myself because I was healing and that was more important. And again, sometimes eventually they lead to one leads to the other. Mm. But often we're asked, 
So, so now let's move in, into talking about surrender. And surrender is not resignation. Surrender is not giving up. Surrender is, in my experience, aligning with the larger currents of life. Mm -hmm. So when a fish finds the current and swims with it, it is surrendering to the current. So it opens up what is the real use of, of will, of willpower. It's not to bend the river, it's to find the current and swim with it. Because when the fish is swimming with the current, it's not only using its strength, it's stronger than itself because the current is carrying it. This is actually what in, you know, in the East, the, the tradition of Taoism is really captures that and, and speaks about the currents of life as the invisible river. And each soul is like a fish in that river. And our job is to find the current and align with it. Mm. And align with it. Wow. So that's, I love yeah, that. That's... Because there's so much resistance. So what you're talking about is the fact that there's, there's resistance in us to letting go of these really difficult experiences, you know, that we carry with us. And, you know, becoming aware of those and, 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 doing all we can to to release them um but the the resistance is it's it's also feels like it's ingrained in society because that that sort of way of being that you're describing is not the dominant sort of way of being it feels as though what we're asked to do in modern life is constantly sort of be in a place of resistance in terms of the way that you know that everything fits together um and it makes me think of of duty um i really enjoyed um your writings on sort of expectations and the fear-based ways of seeing that are so dominant and really destructive actually and um how for you it's as though the journey of life is about realizing this truth um, so in your essay, I think it's, is it the great choice? You ask a really powerful question. It really struck me. Who will live your life? And there's this quote about the sapling that doesn't look to elders for approval. It just grows towards the light. And I wondered if you could tell us about an experience when you've had to choose between compassion and obligation because that seems to be what you're talking about this kind of tension between those two states yeah so <clears throat> i think you know i think one is uh let me also let me give a personal example and then a, a parable that comes to mind as well um i think in being who we are completely because our, our challenge is to be who we are everywhere, to be who we are everywhere. And so, you know, I think that um, a challenge of compassion, and it's a very simple example, but, you know, when I was younger, um, I remember being in a grocery store, being online, and there was an older woman, probably my age now, <laughs> but she seemed old then. And she really had something either wrong with her back or because she was very, very slow. And, and I remember watching and waiting and, and feeling for her and then honestly getting impatient and, you know, it was taking so long. Well, then, you know, in the next year or so, I was doing some sports thing and 
think I was playing racquetball and I tweaked my back, you know, and, um, and all of a sudden, you know, for like 10 days, I could hardly move. And, uh, oh, all of a sudden I got it, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, well, ever since then, if I see someone in line ahead of me like that now, I go carry their groceries for them. Wow. I don't just watch because mm -hmm. when the heart, when our heart is opened, even mm -hmm. in simple ways, you know, it's never, it keeps opening. It doesn't, we, we can ignore that, but if we don't, if we allow the natural surrender to the expanse of our heart, it draws us into kindness. Mm -hmm. It draws us into kindness, you know? So, so let me share, um, uh, well, this is a, a quote in, from one time of history and then a parable about this. So the quote is from in, in China, an early Chinese philosopher, Mencius, um, about 300 BC, he was a wonderfully heart-centered uh, philosopher and and he had this sense that that people allowed their true nature would always be kind mm -hmm. and he said it was like water water allowed its true nature will always flow downhill and join other water now we can manipulate water to go uphill we can even dam it we can make it go in all around in pipes but allowed its true nature it will just flow and join other water and he said so too with human beings mm -hmm. that we can be manipulated or we can ma manipulate ourselves away from our true nature, but allowed our true nature, we will just flow in kindness to each other. Mm -hmm. And so in another tradition, in the Hindu tradition, there's this anonymous teaching story that there's a, an, an older, uh, he's a, he's a holy man who doesn't know he's holy. And at Varanasi, where there's a temple steps famously go into the Ganges River and hundreds of people pray every day. And he's there and he's up to his knees in the water and he's rocking and he's praying. And all of a sudden he, he sees a spider next to him and he, huh, and he stops and he, the spider's struggling in the water. He picks the spider up and the spider is a poisonous spider and it stings him. But because he's a holy man who doesn't know he's holy, it doesn't poison him. But he feels the sting and he brings the spider and he puts it on the steps and then he goes back to praying. And the next day he's in the river, same thing. And all of a sudden, of all things, it's the same spider. And he stops and he picks the spider up and again it stings him. And again he puts it on the, on the shore. Well, the third day, the same thing happens. And as he picks up the spider, the spider looks at him and says, don't you understand? I am a spider. I will sting you every time because that is what I do. And the holy man who doesn't know he's holy says, and don't you understand, I will save you every time because that is what I do. Oh, that's so beautiful. Gosh, well, you know, it makes me think of what it feels like to be a parent. <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not that, you know, kids are always out to sting you, but there's a lot of, uh, it's not easy being a parent. It's, you know. Oh, well, I can only imagine. So we much. don't have children. <laughs> I can only imagine. Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of the, the work and the, the teaching in it is just that, you know, just that kind of giving. But I think 
again, I think it has to come from an authentic place. I think it has to be from the heart. Otherwise, it, 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 it exhausts you and it can, there can be bitterness. Absolutely. In, in, the, in the feeling of, you know, uh, sacrifice and, and just the kind of relentlessness of it, you know. And um, yeah, I, so I, I wanted to actually ask you about that in, in relation to love. Well, let me, I just want to share one other thought about oh, yeah. that story. Yeah. And that is that one of the lessons in that story yeah. <clears throat> is that <clears throat> the strength of our kindness dilutes the sting of the world. Mm. the strength that there is strength in kindness yeah yeah <clears throat> uh, and that makes me think of of something else it makes me think of um <clears throat> of boys um and the way that boys are brought up by their you know their parents into the world understanding that you know understanding that kindness is is strength and you know how powerful it is if you can really teach your sons that you know obviously all children but how really that you know that really will change the world the future oh i, I really do love that story um so i wanted to ask about so about love you said love depends on the capacity to reach beneath the surface of a person which I love that description to touch the seed of life that is hidden there and drawing it from its hiding place. And again, that feel, that's what it feels like to me to be a parent. And also parents are, you know, flawed human beings. Um, we, you know, we, we find it hard to often see beyond our own hopes and dreams. And, and, you know, it's really important that we don't put these on our children and we see them as completely unique you know beings all of their own um so that kind of way of seeing especially of, of other humans but especially of children um is is so key isn't it to to this kind of concept of tenderness i just wondered if you had any guidance on how we can sort of bring that way of being into ourselves and into our hearts you know how can we where do we start <laughs> well i think and again I, I i'm not a parent but i was a child so i have some experience oh. um, <laughs> but um but i do believe that <clears throat> so much has to do with allowing the 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 soul the life force the light of the person before us to touch us mm -hmm. and therefore we don't know it's not our place to it's our place to empower and encourage other life not direct it mm -hmm. and this is a, a tension that is acute in the modern world as you were saying but it's been this has been a choice throughout history do we bend life or do we love life mm -hmm. and and so, you know, there was a French philosopher, Rabelais, who said, a child is a fire to be lit, not a vase to be filled. Mm. A child is a fire to be lit and not a vase to be filled. And mm. we could say that about any soul. Yeah. 
any soul. So, you know, there's a, there's a human tendency that, you know, if I teach you how to use a hammer or a screwdriver, it's up to you what you want to build with it. But I will maybe not even realizing it along with teaching you how to use it. I'll also teach you what to build with it. And that's not appropriate. What's appropriate is to say, what do you feel called to build? I will show you how to use these tools, but you have to follow your heart on and what how to use them in the world. So this is, you know, we can teach people ideas, we can teach people about God, we can teach people about, but then we tend to teach people not just how to pray, but oh, but this is how you should pray and what you should pray for. And if you don't, and it's that, wrong and it's sinful and and this, this, I guess, humbly goes back to, and I'll share a story. It was very touching to me, you know, in a former, in a former marriage, I was, and the, uh, the, these folks are now gone, but my former in-laws were really wonderful, loving farm people from upstate New York in, in New York state. And um, my former father-in-law is a story about him. And he was a very kind, giving person, but he was very imposing on his, with his values and his views and and i remember um and i'm not a farm person i'm a city person and though i learn a lot from nature um but i remember one time he brought me to the back one of the back fields uh and he had and to show me that he had planted in a couple of acres of black walnut trees now black walnut trees take like a hundred years to grow. So I was very moved that he was planning something that would outlive him for others. But the more we were standing there, the more I realized he was pressuring me to say that I would care for them when he was gone. And I felt, I didn't, you know, respectfully, I didn't say anything, but I felt in my heart why isn't one life enough? Mm. Why that's your dream, which I honor and I found really admirable. But I went away thinking and hoping that if I were in that position, I would say to another, these are my black walnuts, what are yours? Mm. Mm. It comes back to that thing of duty, I think, doesn't it? Duty and in a purpose that was his purpose but it wasn't necessarily yours. yeah and it was a it was inspiring to me to find what mine was mm. but i wasn't put here mm. to care for his mm. yeah that's right and he was a good man he was a very loving caring person but that was a deep lesson for me mm. is not to impose mm. our dream and and this is very interesting I'll tell that where it's kind of going here. Let me share this. You know, you you probably have heard of the, you know, the Tower of Babel in mythology as mm-hmm. how supposedly, yeah. you know, languages dispersed to different languages around the earth. Well, the story of that is very telling and powerful, given all this in our times and relevant today. The Tower of Babel started out as a noble idea. And if it, if it took place, if it's not just a story, it's believed to have happened in the Middle East where Iraq is today, and which is interesting. 
But originally it was at a point when the human family was big enough, one tribe that was growing now that people were obviously going to be moving away and going other places. And so the elders of the tribe said, you know, let's build a tower taller than any structure ever built so that when our children get lost, all they have to do is look to the sky and they can find their way home. Mm. That, doesn't, that doesn't sound like a terrible idea, you know? Um, and, uh, but what happened is, you know, this is before machinery and construction. And so it was all by hand and it took generations. Wow. By the third generation, you had grandchildren building someone else's dream. Mm. And unless they found their own way to make it their dream, it's not that it's not that a dream can't span generations. If the grandchildren and children are encouraged to find their own connection to it. Mm -hmm. But here you had people building someone else's dream and they felt imprisoned. They said, why, why are we building this tower? I don't really care about this tower. This was our grandparents dream. And so they resented it and and it took it was so high that it took a year for a worker to carry the next brick. Oh my goodness, just to carry a brick. Wow. And if the worker fell, they mourned the brick over the worker. <laughs> and so what it tells you is when you start to build someone else's dream. You start to care about things and not people. Mm. Yeah. And the, yeah. And the, the, the end of the story, of course, is that they started not caring about the, their own dream, not caring about what people. Someone had the idea, well, let's loot heaven. We're so high up here. And then God confounded their tongues is the word. And they couldn't understand each other and they dispersed around the earth. So when we build someone else's dream and not our own, and when we uh, care about things over people, we lose the ability to understand each other. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, things over people. And um, I feel that, you know, in your, I feel in your work, you talk repeatedly about how we find ourselves in each other um, and in your book finding inner courage you talk about how I love this idea of how in friendship we take turns seeking a guide and being a guide it's such a powerful concept um, and uh, there's a beautiful um, tradition that you share um, the Hawaiian tradition of the Lomi Lomi, where the families, families and groups of friends swim long distances together. And if they are feeling tired or they're, you know, they have a pain, they, they stop and they massage the, the person who's not feeling good and, and they all tread water together. And it really resonated with me because I actually had this experience, this exact experience, um, Years ago, we moved to Barbados, our family from London. That was our first overseas move. And it was such a different um, way of life, you know, living on an island and from being in a city. And I started swimming with this group of women who I didn't really know them. And I wasn't actually really a swimmer, <laughs> but it was something to do there. Um, we were swimming right across the bay and it was actually quite far through very deep water. 
but I thought well you know if they can do it I, I'm sure I can do it <laughs> and, uh, the first couple of times it was really quite overwhelming and quite frightening and we we went into a, a shoal of um or an area where they had sea lice and I was bitten by these sea lice and um not really badly but it was just the whole thing of being out of my depth and and these women were so they were so there was so much tenderness actually they were so kind and you know it wasn't for them about swimming quickly or getting it done or you know doing it in a fast time it was about the group and they were always kind of watching me and taking it in turns and you know when this happened they you know they really kind of took care of me and they helped me breathe and you know they they told me it's going to be fine and we treaded water for quite a long time until I really genuinely felt comfortable because eventually we were just chatting and you know and then we swam on again and it was actually it became a really profound experience this this swimming um really kind of spiritual experience for me um but it reminded me yeah it reminded me of that and um yeah I I think this I love this idea of 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 seeking a guide and being a guide and I, I wondered if you could tell us about a time where you know that's had an impact on you um, oh many times you know I, I've learned from so many people but you know a couple of things come to mind you know my dear friend Robert who I mentioned earlier about yeah uh, rub my arm I mean yeah. we have often uh been each other's guide and you know in fact um it will one very powerful early in our lives because when I was thrust in to my cancer journey he he's in recovery as an alcoholic over 40 years mm. but at, but he was hitting bottom at the time that i was thrown in into the hospital mm. and so we wound up kind of helping each other save each other's lives wow. and year you know five six years later um he i had neuropathy from the chemo, which is your nerve endings are numb and are damaged. Mm. It takes quite a long time, even, even all these years later, there's still a tinge of it left. Mm. And he had neuropathy from, um, from the extreme alcoholism. That's how far along he was Gosh. in alcoholism. And so here we were both five or six years on the other side. We were, it was summer and we were sitting outside and having sandwiches with our numb hands and and in the silence he he and I you know with, with my art and everything and he was intimate with my journey and my writing and um and he looked at me out of the silence and he said um you know I I'm an alcoholic but you're a makeaholic <sighs> and that was, he was being a guide for me, a profound guide. And I was stunned and, and took that in that I, you know, I was out of balance with my creative drive and that anything can become an addiction, anything. Um, if we move faster than the pace of what is real, 
Mm. If we move faster than the heart wants to move. So that that was, you know, one sense. And another guide for me was a dear mentor and friend who's now passed. He lived to be 102 and his name was Joel Elkies. He was a child of the Holocaust. In fact, his parents who were in the in concentration camps sensing what was coming they lived in lithuania and they sent joel and his sister to london in the late 30s early 40s to spare them that and um and he was a doc he became a doctor and he was an amazing watercolorist and i remember when i met him he was 80 and i had i didn't think and we had over 20 years to be friends and and i remember the first time that um I was just so amazed at he, he and his life stories, and I wanted to record some of his stories. And I remember going where he was living at the time, and um, we'd known each other about a year at the time. And and this is before digital. I had a tape recorder, and uh, I set it down, and he looked at it, and he said, "What? what's that? I said, well, I want to tape your stories. He said, why? And he was, you know, Jewish, of course. And he, I said, well, you're an elder, Joel. And he said, elder Schmelder, turn that thing off. <laughs> uh, I said, okay. And so I was kind of, you know, and we just sat and had tea for a while in silence. And then he reached his hand over and took my hand. And he said, tell me what you care about. Tell me what matters to you. And in that moment, you know, he modeled for me what it is to be a true teacher, mm-hmm. which I've always kept close to heart as I've had a chance to teach in the years to come. Mm-hmm. Listening, that sort of deep listening yeah. in others. Oh, oh, those beautiful stories. I love, I love hearing them. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm sure the listeners will too. Um, and I want to talk a bit about courage because I find your writings on courage really profound. I've actually been listening to the audiobook version of um, Finding Inner Courage. Oh. Yeah, and um, one of my favourite things that I've heard you say about courage is courage is about taking the exquisite risk. Um, I love this phrase. Can you talk a bit about what you mean by this? Well, and the exquisite risk I was referring to as well is an earlier book before that was called The Exquisite Risk. Right. And, um, and so it's the it's the risk to be fully here, mm. to hold nothing back, mm. be completely present. So, you know, this is one of the paradoxes of being alive is that every person who's ever been here and will be, we have to both survive and thrive. Mm. And if all we do is survive, what's the point? Mm. If we thrive and ignore what's necessary to survive, we won't survive long. So they're like two good legs. You need two good legs to walk. You need two good eyes to see. Um, We need to be skilled at both. And one of the things about this is that to survive in the outer world, we need to manage risk. Mm. You know, if we were having this conversation on a busy 
street in a city and we didn't pay attention, we could get hit by a truck. <laughs> we have to manage risk. Mm. But the exquisite, what, what allows us, the only reason to survive is to live fully. And so in the inner world, if we are to be fully alive and grow, we have to enhance risk. Mm. And that's the exquisite, the exquisite risk is the next risk before you to help you be fully alive, whatever that might be, mm. whatever that might be. And sometimes we confuse those. And, you know, if if we don't take if we manage risk inwardly and don't enhance risk, we we start to go numb. We start to go gray. But it, and if we don't follow our heart, but uh, we wind up taking needless risk in the outer world, we seek danger and adventure, mm. which is a substitute for the exquisite risk, for mm. the genuine risk. Mm. You know, I knew I knew a man who was a very gifted man earlier in my life. He, he was a surgeon. And his avocation was to, he was a mountain climber. He wanted to, and he did, he climbed the 48 great peaks in the world, serious mountain climbing. Mm. But from my perspective, from how I knew him, he was afraid to journey inwardly. Oh, yeah. Every time he came back from one of these amazing climbing expeditions, the door inside was still there that wasn't open. No matter where he went, no matter how many places he climbed, the exquisite risk was still waiting. Yeah, I mean that. So a, a question, a question for our listeners is, you know, what what door is exquisitely waiting for you to open, mm. in, that will allow your heart to be more open and allow you to be more fully alive. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's like you've got to see the door, you've got to notice it's there and then have the courage to explore what's behind it. And, and courage is in, you know, like I really believe in holding nothing back and leaning into life. Well, we can practice that, but when we really need it is when the difficulty of life pushes us away, that's when we need to lean in. Lean in. And courage isn't the absence of fear. Um, I think there was a man, Ambrose Redmoon, um, who said, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's believing that there's something more important than our fear. Mm. And it's acting, it's leaning into life while we're afraid. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of faith or trust in something bigger than ourselves, I suppose, that enables us to do that. Well, and I believe, I believe that um, while things are difficult, you know, there are clouds and rain and storms, but the sun never stops shining. Mm. So, you know, we tend as human beings, there are whole philosophies of life that say, well, oh, you're making too much of the storm. Just concentrate on the sun and then we become you know we're not grounded we're we're pie in the sky mm -hmm. but the other extreme is difficult as well we're we're saying i don't see the sun so it doesn't exist and then we're just ground up in the difficulties of life and the truth is that both are true both 
Both are true, and but it helps me that even though I I have to acknowledge the reality of the storm, the reality that the sun is still shining, it hasn't stopped shining. Mm. It's just like when I was in that Holiday Inn during my cancer journey, the fact that that life, other life was happening because it's the diversity of life mm. in which resilience lives definitely uh, yeah it reminds me of what you said earlier in our conversation about this this thing of the and it's you know it's it's the pain and it's the beauty and um there's a i don't know if you've heard of rob bell but he's a, a speaker that i really i really enjoy listening to him and he talks about um he says it's all of it you know that you know life it it's all of it it's just all of it and it's it's everything it's it's encompassing you know the you know the, the kind of intensity and the, the beauty and the darkness and the sorrow all wrapped up together um and that's definitely how I've come to to understand it but I, I don't feel that was the the picture that I was given of the world as I was growing up I feel that that's I don't know. Do you feel like this way of seeing is is becoming more? I don't know. Is, is it growing this way of seeing? Because it well, I I feel that I feel that every generation is faced with with these choices, and it's our turn. It's our turn to see how close we can be to life and each other and whether we live out of fear or out of love. Mm. And so it's not that for me, you know, for me, there's a difference between incarnation and progress. Mm. Progress is that we can outwardly leave the world a little better for the next generation. Mm. But incarnation are the are these sets of choices and thresholds that every human being will have to face, but no two people live them the same way. I think it's what Carl Jung men, meant by an archetype, mm. you know, birth, death, friendship, love, trust, betrayal, you know, solitude, community. I mean, all these things, you know, le leaning in, coming alive, mm. taking the exquisite risk. They're, so everyone has a, a turn at this. And this is why it's so important, you know, how this, how this uh, applies to the world as we're going through it is that the inner work that we each do makes us a healthy cell in the global body. Yeah. So it's not just self-centered. You know, when I, I learned in doing research for one of my books, More Together Than Alone, which was about looking at communities across history and cross-culturally, just for stories of moments we worked well together. And, and mm -hmm. I learned that, you know, in, in the, what we call the dark ages, which mm -hmm. were dark in Europe, not the rest of the world, the rest of the world was pretty enlightened actually at that time, but there were, there were only 10% of the European population uh, was literate. There was 10% kept literacy alive for 350 years about. So if ever it's incumbent on us now, our turn to keep the literacy of the heart alive, 
mm. which does involve, you know, highlighting things like tenderness, like you're doing, and uh, all the things we're talking about. Because if, you know, in a, in a single body, I'm healthy if I have more healthy cells than toxic. Yeah. Well, so too in the global body, and every soul is a cell in the global body. Yeah, so, there's this concept, isn't there? Is it One Health I've, I've read about, which is really fascinating, where it describes, you know, the, the planet like that, that we're all, like, even the, you know, the bacteria in our stomachs, the bacteria in our eyelashes, it, it's all the same thing. We're all connected, and our health literally affects the health of the planet. I mean, it, it's such a profound way of thinking about it, isn't it? Yeah, and so I, I think that the great teachers have always been great love and great suffering. And um, and if we face what is ours to face, that, that leads us to that exquisite risk mm. to be here fully mm. and to care for each other. Mm. And so, so here, here's a parable there that speaks to this and about whether our duty, our obligation to ourselves or what others hold for us. So versus caring for each other. And so there are two monks who are studying together long and hard because they've been told at the end of their study, they will keep an appointment on the top of this mountain with Buddha. And so the day comes and they're off and they're climbing the mountain and halfway up, one of them breaks his leg. Mm. So they spend the night. And the next day, um, the one who didn't break his leg is, ho hopes to still keep his appointment and make his his friend comfortable. But mm. well, when they wake up in the morning, the one who broke his leg isn't doing well. Oh. He has a fever, and it's not as simple as just leaving him. And the parable ends there and says, what would you do? And when we have more people in an age who will keep their appointment at the top of the mountain than caring for their broken other mm. of an age that will engender cruelty. Mm. And when we have more people who will discover that caring for their broken other is the summit, we have an age that will engender compassion. Mm. And the truth is every one of us faces these choices every day. And it doesn't matter what is you put on top of the mountain, whether it's Buddha or wealth or security or family or God or whatever. When we put that ahead of living life, mm -hmm. unrehearsed and unplanned, it's not that we shouldn't have goals or work toward things, mm -hmm. but I have found in my life that working for what I want has often been an apprenticeship for working with what I've been given. Mm. And it's working with what I've been given that has shown me my true gift. Mm. Yeah, you've, you've kind of, it's as though you're, you've been able to find that flow between those places and, and they've connected seamlessly. Um, and yeah, that that story is it's it's wonderful. It's almost a bit like the Good Samaritan as well, isn't it? It's that kind of yes. sense of of not of, of not having your blinkers on. Um, and actually, it it ties really well because I wanted to talk to you about time. Um, so I 
I've, I loved one of your essays in Inside the Miracle. Um, you said succumbing to speed is a form of isolation that makes us feel inadequate because we're always falling short, catching up. And we start to find what matters when we stop rushing. And um, it's resonated with me so deeply because anyone who knows me will tell you that I'm not very good <laughs> with time. And I've always struggled with it, but I recently came across a concept of time benders. I don't know if you've heard of this, but there was a book written by um, a woman called Grace Pacey. Um, and she said these ex people experience time in a different way to others. Um, so they literally experience time slowing down and speeding up and they regularly get deeply engrossed in things and lose track of time. Um, I, I have, I think, always been a bit like this. Um, I am regularly late for social engagements, although I never miss a work deadline. So there is like an aspect of it where I must have an element of control. Um, but I have found definitely since having children that this sort of pressure of time and then of balancing, you know, caring and working and responsibilities. And then I remember really clearly, you know, when I had my first child, I was in my 20s and it wasn't planned and, and it was such a big life change. And I remember actually sort of surrendering to it and loved when it was just the two of us. But then there was a moment where it was as though the world came knocking on the door and said, now you have to go back into the world and you have to make appointments and you have yeah. to get the bus and you've got to get the bus at the right time. And, and that was sort of as though that was when things fell apart, because before that, and I was just in this bubble with her, everything was perfect. But when I had this, you know, this pressure of time, which felt as though it was coming from the outside world and um I, I wanted to ask you about your relationship with time. Um, do you think yeah. you're a time bender? Well, yeah, I, and I would phrase it this way. Um, and I think it doesn't matter what we call it. <clears throat> that, yeah, we, we, ha we are taught in a way like uh, we're thrown into a race that has already begun when we're, and we're supposed to catch up. Mm. And of course, yes, as I you quoted there, you know, I have learned and mostly through my cancer journey that all of that didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was being here mm. and what I've learned. So to me, it's the difference between moving through time and entering time. And when we enter time by being, by holding nothing back and giving our full heart's attention, things become timeless. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I'm struggling or anxious or confused or afraid, one thing uh, beyond addressing whatever the situation is, is I try to give my full attention to whatever is before me. It could be a fly. It could be dust. Mm -hmm until it becomes my teacher mm. and then we fall into the miracle of life you know one of the things from almost dying was you know just like always catching up as a young artist i was always taught like like many of us are regardless of art form be on the look for good material mm. you know but 
almost dying made me realize it gave me the lens of the miraculous. Every the mm -hmm. hidden in the ordinary is the extraordinary. And all it's asking is for me to be present enough to reveal itself. So I can write about anything if I'm present enough for it to be my teacher. Mm -hmm. And that requires entering time. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, in the, when we try to, this is like the interface between surviving and thriving is, you know, when I am drawn into time, it's relationally responsible just to let other people know what's going on. In other words, if I'm going to be late for something, I'm saying, hey, I'm this unexpected thing happened. Mm -hmm. I'll be there when I can or let's reschedule or, you know, and I think what happens often is that, you know, we I think we we have a response, our relationship to life and each other. They're all one skill set. And so this is what I talk about by about the need to stay current mm. with each other. To mm. mm. not hide the places I go, but to be responsible about the places I go with others. Honesty and openness. Mm. Yeah. 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 And so um and in fact, you know, I think people are always kind enough that you have been kind enough to about my work. And um, and I think if, if it really if my work is is touching to others, it's really a tribute to what we're talking about is my my commitment has always been what I learned um, early was. I'm only going to write when I'm entering time, not when I'm moving through time. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm moving through time, I'm in my head. Mm, when yeah. I'm entering time, I'm in my heart. And I'm, I've made a lifelong commitment that I will only write when I'm in my heart. And so when I do that, I touch into a, a place where we all live. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it connects with other people. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's definitely speaking from the heart, I feel. And, and do you have a practice that enables you to get into that heart space? Is there something that you do before starting work, like a regular practice? Well, I, I have, and I would encourage, these are just mine, but I would encourage uh, everyone uh, listening to create your own simple vows or practices to, to open your heart each day. And for me, they're very simple. But, you know, I do three things. Um, the first thing is I open the blinds and let light in. Mm. Very, and, and then the second thing is, you know, our dog, I, I, who's sleeping here, I care <laughs> for, so, you know, I care for something living. Mm. And the third is that, I, you know, my wife, who's a potter, she's more of a night person and I'm more of a morning person, so I'm always up first. And so the third thing is I do something for someone I love. Like, so I always have make her coffee before she gets up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this raises, if I'm rushing through that, say, you know, I've got other things and I'm pressed some days and I go, oh, gee, I want to do my three things, but, you know, I, I got to do this and I've got to call and then I got to go to the dentist. And well, then they're not a vow. They become a habit. Mm -hmm. 
so self-awareness is recognizing that because I'm human and staying current with myself as if I realize that I'm in the middle of it and I'm rushing through it, then I stop and start over and say, no, I'm, I'm doing this habitually today. I need to stop and enter it so that it matters because when I do it as when it matters, it's a ritual and it changes how I enter the rest of the day. Oh, I love how simple those three things are. They're not even, you know, meditating for half an hour or <laughs> journal all of your goals for the day or all of your, you know, prayers or I mean, you know, it it just speaks to this this sense of presence that you're talking about and I just think that's so profound that you shared that because everyone can do that everyone can bring you know presence to their morning by doing things that they would do with that that sense of yeah awareness and presence and and I encourage people not you don't have to do what I do these are just examples not instructions and but find the one or two or three things that mm -hmm. you can do being fully present mm. that will open your heart for the day. Mm. It's that thing of intention and bringing that to just very simple practice. Yeah. Love that. I love that so much. Mark, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. And it brings me to my final question, which is a question I always um, ask at the end. And it, it's, it's the fact that the idea behind the tenderness revolution, as in having this quality of tenderness for ourselves and others, is the three C's because they actually enable us to fully see the truth about the way things are. And they are courage, curiosity, and compassion. And I wanted to ask you, if you had to choose one of these qualities, I know it's difficult, but if you, if you did, one that means the most to you in your life, what would you choose and why? Well, um, I guess if pressed, I mean, I think they're all wonderful and interrelated, you know, yeah. but I first, I would say compassion and um, because um, opening our heart is the key to all of it for me, the key to our authenticity. Um, and love uh, makes us courageous. Love makes us, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, for so much of my life, and I think all of us were taught, like, you know, I thought I was reaching for something or someone. Mm -hmm. And I learned over time that it's the way light fills every hole. It's the reach from the heart that keeps life going. Mm. And it almost doesn't matter who or what we reach for. So I would, I would say pressed, I would choose compassion. Mm. Yeah. Connecting to the heart, which is really feels like what your work is, is all about. So that's really beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for being so open with me and for being on the Tenderness Revolution. Oh, you're really so welcome. And thanks for letting me be a part of your good work too. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Tenderness Revolution. I hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us. for listening to this episode of the tenderness revolution i hope you come back for more because my aim with this podcast is to help us become more aware of these moments of kindness and compassion and how they shape our lives and enable us to feel more connected to the world around us